But we're going to start this morning with just the first, uh, the first few verses from the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, reading verses 1 to 12. And it's entitled in the NIV, Introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went upon a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, and, began to te- and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This really is the word of our Lord. Amen. Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones of uh, past years, some of you may have heard him preach. On the 1st of July, 1955, on a Friday night, he began a series at the chapel, Westminster Chapel. And he started the series on the book of Romans, and he said to the almost 1,000 people who were there, he said, I don't know how long this is going to take to get through the book of Romans, but bear with me. He finished... In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, when his health gave in and he had to retire from the ministry, but that was only in April 1968, some 400 sermons later. Now, I'm a great fan of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and when Nick suggested we have a look at the Sermon on the Mount, I I said, well, what does Martin Lloyd-Jones have to say about the Sermon on the Mount? Hopefully not 400 sermons. So I went to his book, where all those sermons are recorded, and fortunately there are only 61. I thought, even that's a little bit much. That's going to, I've only got six. So I said, well, let's see, who who took over from Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel? And of course it was his young protege, the young Kentucky minister, R.T. Kendall. Some of you may have heard him preach. He preached 91 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm stuck. I looked at the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.T. Kendall, and I looked at what John Stott had to say, and Oswald Chambers, and D.A. Carson, and others. And it's a remarkable piece of the Bible. And few would disagree that these three chapters in Matthew comprise the most well-known passage containing the teachings of Jesus in the whole of the Bible. Certainly the most quoted part of the Bible, some might say. John Stott says this, He said it is the best known, arguably the least understood, and certainly the least obeyed. This manifesto of the newly established kingdom of heaven is indeed widely interpreted and widely misinterpreted. Of yesteryear we had the people, we called them the social gospelers. These were folk who saw in the Sermon on the Mount nothing more than a bunch of really good teachings. Difficult teachings, but good teaching. And if we were all to live like that, you see, then the world would be a far better place. 
On the opposite extreme, there were those, we might call them hyper-dispensationalists, who said there's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that has any relevance to the present age. It's only relevant for the kingdom age, which is still to come when Christ returns. I'm not one of those. Others say it's a, it's a new set of laws. It's taking the place of the Ten Commandments. And if you want to know God, you've got to follow these laws. It becomes another salvation by works type of passage. My view, however, co coincides with the commentators that I've mentioned to you. And John Stott particularly sums up the Sermon on the Mount in just a couple of words. He says it is this. It is the Christian counterculture. That's what it is. The Christian counterculture. And I believe in the church today, in 2020, it is hugely relevant. We live in a world, a world that's seen decades of warfare interspersed by years of disillusioned optimism. We still have pockets of horrible warfare across the world today. We have the massive impact of climate change decimating parts of our planet with fires and with floods. We have revolution, violent crime on the increase in so many places. Human trafficking and slavery at a scale never seen before in human history. And even here in the relatively peaceful Western world, we have social scientists who tell us it's okay just to kill unborn babies. And the, and the old can just decide when they want to die. They, they can take their life into their own hands. It's all okay. Gender differences in this world have been blurred, leaving everyone confused. Psychologists and self-help gurus are telling us that we can be whatever we want to be. To be heroes in our own worlds, to stand up for our rights, to live for number one, to be assertive and to live the dream. Philosophers and humanists and secularists are trying to persuade us that faith in the supernatural is outdated and foolish. The answers lie in taking evolution back into the laboratory and genetically modifying life and so rid ourselves of disease and any other kind of imperfections. And then there are the hedonists who implore us to binge every weekend, to drink ourselves into oblivion, to inject ourselves with mind-numbing substances to block out the realities we don't want to face to make love with whoever we want whenever we please, and to eat and drink and be merry, for we may well be dead tomorrow. And even then, it's just oblivion. And then we have the established church, hardly ever countercultural and far too conformist. The church, for the large part, is just not the new society that it needs to be. A new way of being that embodies the solutions to people's deepest needs. And this is a huge tragedy. We have people living and dying in ignorance and need. And we have the church hovering on the sidelines, wringing its hands, bemoaning the evil of it all, but failing to speak the truth, to offer the answers, to provide the healing for the large part, the church looks far too conformed to the ways of the world. Just another version of the same old thing that never worked back then and it's not working now. 
And I'd suggest to you this morning that the most tragic, the most hurtful thing that anyone can ever say to the church and can ever say to you and I as Christians, the most hurtful thing they can ever say is this, you're no different to anyone else. And here comes Jesus. And here comes three chapters of the most remarkable teaching, which flies counter to everything the experts tell us is wise and the world tells us is fun. This sermon, or maybe it's not a whole sermon, maybe it's highlights of a sermon. It only takes about eight or nine minutes to preach the whole sermon. So maybe it's just part of a sermon. Appears near the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's around 30 years of age. He's been baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptizer. He's been in the wilderness for about a month and a half, wrestling with the devil and preparing himself for ministry. He's called a few folk to follow him. And now we find him in the province of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. And his teaching and healing ministry is beginning. And he begins to speak of the kingdom of heaven, or as the other gospel is called it, the kingdom of God. Long promised by the prophets of the Old Testament. But a new day is now dawning. And God has now broken into history in a whole new way. In fact, it was John the Baptist whose message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus now travels all over Galilee because of the growing crowds. This time, he's on a hillside. He's not in a synagogue. He's not in someone's home or in a field. He's on a hillside. The fundamental message of the Sermon on the Mount is probably found in the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. Repentance means simply a total change of mind, a turning around and facing in the opposite direction, not unlike Nick was suggesting a little bit earlier in the illustration. A change of mind, a turning around, a change of direction. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of how life really could be and how different the human condition is meant to be if and when individuals come under the gracious rule of God. And when we come under the gracious rule of God, what should we look like? What should we sound like? We, kingdom, we citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In a word, different. Jesus' true followers, his disciples, were to be entirely different from anyone else. They were no longer to take their cue from the people around them, but from him, their new king. And in doing so, they give clear evidence that they are now the genuine children of the Heavenly Father. So the key text of this whole sermon, the key text of the whole sermon is probably found in chapter 6 and verse 8. You can look at it very briefly. Chapter 6, verse 8, just the first few words, I think, is the key to this sermon. And in these words, Jesus simply says, do not be like them. Do not be like them. And when he's using the word them, he's not referring to the pagans. He's not referring to the Romans or the Greeks. He's referring to the religious leaders of the time. Don't be like them, he says. Don't be like them. Yes, Jesus in this sermon is telling us that our behavior is, is to be completely distinct from that that is admired by the world. 
And these beatitudes that have been read to us are a good example of that. And we are to shine, the sermon says, like bright lights in prevailing darkness. Our righteousness is to far exceed that of those who call themselves good and holy people. Our love is to be greater, our ambitions far nobler than any of our neighbors, pagan or religious. As followers of this Jesus, we are to be totally different. Different from the nominal church and from the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. This sermon is the most countercultural description of Christian life found anywhere in the Bible with its radical, radical value system. It's unbelievably demanding ethical standards. It's deep level of spiritual devotion and a remarkable set of attitudes towards things like money, ambition, day-to-day lifestyle, relationships. So it seems obvious why we should be studying it. Jesus went to his death and rose from the grave and left us the Holy Spirit so that we might actually be enabled to live this way. That's why we study it. And the more we find ourselves living with his power and his enablement in the ways that are described in this sermon, the more we will experience his blessing. And preaching and teaching from this Sermon on the Mount is not just about challenging and encouraging Christians. This this sermon is about evangelism as well. Billy Graham in many of his sermons used as his text a passage from the, the Sermon on the Mount. Men and women and young people are searching, I believe, for a new and more meaningful way to look at the world and at human behavior. In 1953, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in one of his messages on the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe it is relevant today. He said, I am never tired of saying that what the church needs is not so much to organize more evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but for Christians simply to begin to live the Christian life. If we did that, men and women might come crowding into our buildings. Let's go to the text, Matthew chapter 5. I hope you have it open in front of you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. There's a similar passage in Luke chapter 6. You'll see it from verse 17. It's a little bit different because it starts like this. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Not on a mountainside, on a level place. And a large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over the area. Is this the same sermon? Maybe. It's a much shorter version if it is. I tend to think it may not be the same sermon. There's no reason why Jesus shouldn't repeat himself on a number of occasions to different audiences. But it doesn't really matter. This is a sermon, an encapsulation of what God wants us to know from whatever sermon this was, whether it was a shorter one or a much longer one. These are the words that God wants us to have. And who is the audience? The audience is a large crowd, most likely, mostly Jewish. Maybe some of, them, some of the Jewish leaders have snuck into the crowd just to hear what's going on. And in the front 
other disciples, the ones that he has called, the ones who are following him. And then it says Jesus sat down. You say, well, that's a bit unusual. If he's going to speak, why doesn't he stand up? No, he sits down. Because when you're teaching in the synagogue as a Jewish leader, the sign that you're ready to speak, you sit down. And then everybody stops and they listen and you begin to speak. speak. So he sits down. A word about these beatitudes. These um, blessed are this, blessed are that. Some people say there's seven of them, some say there are eight of them, some say there are nine of them. It doesn't really matter how you count them. But there's a bit of a similarity, I think, between these and the, some say the Ten Commandments, because the first four, like in the first four of the Ten Commandments, are largely about our relationship with God, whereas the rest of them are more about our relationship with other people. So they are, in a sense, similarly structured. But the key, maybe, is about this word blessed. What does this word blessed mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of the translations of the Bible, you may have one, like the New English Bible, I think the uh, Good News Bible, tend to translate the word happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. And it's not an inaccurate translation, but I don't think it gets to the point. It seems a little bit of a light-hearted word for me. In fact, you could also translate it lucky, but I don't think that's what it means. The word blessed has become a little bit overused, possibly. I've heard many people on the television, on the radio, folk who have no connection whatsoever to the Christian faith, say, oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. What they normally mean is, fate has dealt me a good good hand here. I've been really lucky. But what does this word blessed mean? I would suggest to you that the word blessed here means meeting God's approval. Blessed means approved by God, favored by God. R.T. Kendall says even anointed by God. So the translation may be something like this. The poor in spirit are approved by God. They're blessed. Hence they are heirs to the kingdom of God. Those who mourn meet God's approval and they will be comforted. The meek enjoy God's favor and they will inherit the earth, and so on. So, beatitude number one, then. The first step, if you like, and some might say the most important fundamental step to countercultural Christian living is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as we might translate it, those who are poor in spirit have God's approval, and their reward is the kingdom of heaven. We need to know what is meant by poor in spirit. We're talking here not about material poverty, but spiritual poverty. And there are those in the church over the decades, over the centuries, who have preached what we call a social gospel, and they've actually retranslated the, this, this particular verse. And so they translate it like this. Blessed in spirit are the poor. You hear the difference? Blessed in spirit are the poor. In other words, the poor are, 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 are the people for whom this is all meant. The materially poor, the poor of this world, are the ones to whom this is being directed. And while Jesus certainly has a place in his heart, and so should we for the poor of this world, this is not what this verse is talking about. 
this verse is talking about spiritual poverty. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? One who is poor in spirit is one who recognizes his or her spiritual emptiness if it were not for God. A man or a woman who is poor in spirit experiences spiritual brokenness that comes when he or she recognizes how unworthy they are in God's presence. So it is about spiritual brokenness and poverty, not spiritual arrogance, spiritual pride, or spiritual independence. And in the Christian life, I would suggest, you cannot be filled unless you were empty. I don't believe there's such a thing as spiritual topping up. By analogy, Jesus uses this analogy, you cannot take a carafe that has had a little bit of the old wine in the bottom and simply add the new wine to it. You have to first of all empty out the old wine and clean it out and then add the new wine. That's how you do it. And in a real sense, all who come to Christ must come as people who first recognize their spiritual emptiness and hopelessness without him. Unless one comes to him in spiritual emptiness and repentance, you're coming from entirely the wrong place. It is only when we stand before God and recognize our spiritual emptiness that we are in a position to accept by faith his offer of salvation and his filling by the Holy Spirit. There are always two sides to the gospel, you see. The pulling down, followed by the raising up. The emptying, followed by the filling. So in many ways, the way up is down. The way up is down on our knees in repentance. And this concept of spiritual brokenness and emptiness is so utterly countercultural. It's an attitude that is not only scorned by the world, but utterly despised by it. I don't know whether any of you see a therapist. You wouldn't admit to it if you did, and I wouldn't blame you, so don't, don't, then I'm a show of hands here. But try telling your therapist next time you see him or her and say to them, I'm really poor in spirit. I'm feeling spiritually broken. I'm feeling spiritually empty. He'll roll his eyes and view you with pity and dismay. He'll tell you you were in a sorry state indeed and you need to urgently rediscover your self-esteem. You need to recover your pride in yourself and pick yourself up and stand for your independence and strive for your self-authentication. I study psychology. I know what they do. You know, if you want to get any job in the world, you need to come across as self-confident, self-reliant, self-fulfilled, really in charge of yourself. If you want to get ahead in the world, you need to believe in yourself and stand up for yourself. You're assured of success in life and in business. How? By expressing yourself with confidence, by asserting yourself, by believing the power you have in yourself, by doctoring your CV to present a successful, polished superman or superwoman, someone in full control, self-made. And along comes Jesus, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're all aware of what we might call the cult of personality. Even in the church, we admire a speaker who seems to have great personality. 
We admire a company CEO with a forceful personality or a celebrity with an attractive personality. And what is this great, strong personality based on? It's based on self-confidence, self-belief, self-control, self-assurance. And heaven help you if you go to an interview and you think you did okay, but you're turned down for the job and you discover it because somebody said, she seems a little lacking in personality. No, indeed, being poor in spirit is not only unpopular, it seems to be downright useless in today's secular world. But remember that being poor in spirit does not mean being weak, nervous, or timid. It does not mean you are lacking in courage. It does not mean you have to be shy and reserved and totally introverted. It is not being some kind of Uriah Heap pseudo-humble person, self-described hopeless case, a doormat for everyone else, completely suppressing your personality. But it does. It does mean a complete absence of pride and arrogance, an absence of total self-reliance and self-assurance. And it is a keen consciousness that apart from God in our lives, we are and have nothing worth to offer anybody. And this poverty of spirit, the spiritual brokenness, we must remember, is not something we can kind of produce in our own selves. It too comes from God. It comes when we experience a tremendous and real awareness of our utter sinfulness and helplessness when we come face to face with God. And the deeper and the clearer our knowledge of God the more we feel our spiritual poverty. So there's a seeming paradox here, if you like. Spiritual maturity is measured usually by a deeper and deeper sense of spiritual poverty, not by some kind of growing spiritual self-confidence. And the great spiritual heroes of the faith from biblical times and in the centuries of church history have always been men and women who were keenly aware of the fact that they had nothing in themselves that they could boast of. When we are truly Christian, we realize we have nothing to rely upon from our natural birth or heritage. We place no trust in the fact that we are born with a certain name or a certain set of physical traits or gifts of personality or natural talents. We take no pride in our ethnicity or our nationality, or what school or college we may have attended. No, we regard that all as Paul did when he looked back upon his ethnic origins and his educational achievements. And in Philippians chapter 3 from verse 7 he says this, But whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he makes the staggering statement, I consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ. The hymn writer puts it like this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless, Come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, 
Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the language of the man of woman who is poor in spirit. It doesn't sound anything like we're supposed to think and speak as men and women of the world. So what is the reward? What is the reward that awaits the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Now what does that mean? And how is it a reward if you are poor in spirit? Much debate and much disagreement, of course, about this concept, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But most would agree with the principle that the kingdom of heaven is, in a sense, twofold. It is already here, and yet it is already to come. It is still to come. In terms of the kingdom that is yet to come, there are different views. It is mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament many times. We pray the Lord, prayer, thy kingdom come. So there is a sense of futurity about the coming kingdom. However you believe that, whether you think of a millennial kingdom or you think about the new creation, there is a time when we will inherit fully this new world that God has made for us. And yet, there's a present tense to it as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, right now. Just a very short time before this, we see Jesus teaching in Matthew uh, chapter 4. And we see Jesus in the town of Capernaum. And he is, in part, reacting to the news of the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, or it says, the scripture says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And a few years later in his ministry, he says this in Luke chapter 17. Once being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is already here. Jesus is already ruling But it is in no way the kind of kingdom that the Jews at the time, then or now, were expecting. It is an internal, invisible kingdom. Let me try to define it for you if I can. I'd like to try to define it this way, and I am leaning heavily on some of the commentators because I find it challenging. Today, for the Christian, the kingdom of heaven is the unhindered rule of of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. Today, for the Christian, the kingdom of heaven is the unhindered rule of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will enjoy the unhindered rule of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. We can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4. His work in our hearts can be hindered by our own interference, by our own pride, by our stubbornness, by our desire to do it our own way. The kingdom has has a ruler, and that ruler is Jesus, and he doesn't share that rule with us. What a promise this is, then. When you are poor in spirit, you are approved by God And then you can experience the unhindered rule of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And that's just the start. That's just the start. 
And next Sunday and the Sundays after, we'll begin to see that with this spirit of brokenness, with this spirit of humility and repentance, blessing after blessing after blessing comes our way. So let me close with one or two questions, which you might like to make a note of. If you're in one of the home groups, they will appear in your study. As a citizen, then, of the kingdom of heaven, how do I distinguish myself by my speech and my behavior from the people I know who are not Christians? How am I visibly different in the way I am at work from day to day? How am I different? The way I am with my immediate family, am I different? The way I come across on my social media profiles, do I come across as different? The way I socialize and celebrate, am I different? The way I play my sport, am I different? The language I use, especially when I'm angry, am I different? The way I live with the people in my street, am I different? The way I live as a citizen of my county, my town, my village, am I different? The second question is this, a person who is poor in spirit is someone who has a clear view of the glory and the greatness of God. How do you see God this morning? Have you gone past the early pictures you had of God when you were a child? Do you see God as the God of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4? That great God on the throne in Revelation 4, the Lamb upon the throne, the God who is attended by all the living creatures? that God of beauty and majesty? Or do you see him as the God of Psalm 23 and John 10, the great shepherd, the one who cares for the sheep? How do you see God this morning? We only ever realize our spiritual poverty when we compare ourselves to the vision we have of God. If our vision of God is dysfunctional and feeble, we'll never experience that depth of, of, of distance between us in that sense. Finally, Living in the kingdom of God means giving the Holy Spirit unhindered access to our heart and life. What is stopping the Holy Spirit having complete control of your life this morning? Is it a secret habit that nobody knows about? Is it a lie that you've been living, a grudge that you're carrying? A relationship that shouldn't be? Is it your love affair with your phone, your Facebook profile, your PlayStation? What is it that's stopping the Holy Spirit have complete control in your life? This morning, don't postpone that prayer of repentance that you know you need to offer. Do it today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts, we pray. Help us to see you in a new way, and then to see ourselves as we really are, to repent of our sins, and to give the Holy Spirit unhindered access to every part of our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.